Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California in partnership with Wonderfest Science. My name is Kishore Hari. I'm with the Science and Society team at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and I'm excited to be moderating today's program. I'm pleased, I'm honored, I'm thrilled to be joined by Walter Isaacson, famed biographer and former CEO and president of the Aspen Institute, to discuss his new book, The Code Breaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. As a journalist and professor of history, Isaacson has spent his career writing biographies on prominent historical figures like Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci, Benjamin Franklin, and many more. Now Isaacson is documenting the life of UC Berkeley professor Jennifer Doudna and the scientific developments accomplished under her leadership. With that, why don't we get started? Uh, we'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions too. So if you're watching along with us, uh, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Thank you, Walter, for joining us today. Hey, Kishore, and thanks for everything you all do at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which helped fund a lot of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, what drew you to a revolution in life, life sciences? Because that's not that's not exactly what I expected you to cover um, with your with this book. Well, I had covered the physics revolution of the first half of the 20th century in Einstein and other things I've written. And that led us to amazing things like the atom bomb and the semiconductor. And then, of course, I was immersed in the digital revolution, both as a participant, but also as a biographer of Steve Jobs, looking at computers, the microchip and the Internet. And it began to dawn on me that we're entering, uh, we had entered, a next great wave of innovation. And that was in the life sciences. And in some ways, it was going to be more consequential than the other two revolutions, because it would mean we could even hack, you know, the evolution of our species. We could control our own genetic code. And as I was doing it, it it started hitting home more and more. The coronavirus pandemic made me realize, okay, uh, these molecules are the new microchip. We have to learn how to program them. Oh, I love thinking about it the way that the molecules are the new microchip. It sort of, uh, it reinforces the nature of how massive this innovation is. Uh, but before we get there, I'm so used to re reading your biographies of different trailblazers, but these are trailblazers who largely their mark upon history has has been has been written with Jennifer and CRISPR technology that it's just maturing right now and we have a ways to go before we understand the ramifications of the technology uh when approaching this topic how did you um kind of think about it knowing that we're in the middle of the story as it stands yeah, the book is different than my previous ones because it's sort of a journey of discovery. I mean, we're going hand in hand, and Jennifer Doudna is allowing me to be in her lab. So is Fong Zhang and George Church and all the players in the book. And we're discovering this as we go along. It's almost like I'm reporting it in real time, which seemed an exciting way to do a book. Usually I'm looking way back, whether even with Steve Jobs, but certainly with Leonardo, I already knew uh, what was going to happen, and I was just reporting it. Here, I got to kind of live it as it was happening. And in real time, you get to notice things, you know, far more details of personality and how how Jennifer's personality and Emmanuel's and Fong Zhang's, 
you know, how they interacted to push this forward. So I hope it reads a little bit more like an adventure story than some of my previous books, because it's not just pure history. It actually reads almost like a mystery at points, even though I knew where like this was heading. Uh, so it, it was sort of a, a feat uh, being able to spin a tale of life science as a mystery. Well, but- it was like, the reason I was able to do that is because as I was reporting, we weren't sure where it was going. And so you can sort of sense my excitement of, oh, wow, I can't wait to see how this experiment or this concept or this debate over ethics, how it's going to end. Uh, as you alluded to, you are living uh, this story as it as it unfolded. And naturally, one of the things that came up as this story unfolded uh, was the pandemic. And you begin your book with a story of how Jennifer found out about the pandemic. Um, and I've had the, the privilege of interviewing um, uh, Jennifer Dowden before and meeting her son that is referenced Andy. in that story. Do you? Yeah. Do you want to relate to that? Uh, do you, can you tell us about that moment that she discovers uh, that the pandemic is going to hit? Yeah, because it's a very relatable moment. She's a parent, and she had sent Andy, who you met, he was 17, off to Fresno, California, to the robotics competition, you know, Dean Kamen's first robotics. And it was early March, about a year ago. And at 2 in the morning, she wakes up her husband, Jamie, and says, we got to go get Andy. We got to go retrieve him. I don't want him in that convention center tomorrow for the robots. Now, as you know, Andy's an only child. So he's like, when they get there, they're driving. It's like 5 a.m. He's like, oh, mom, oh, dad. But as they're pulling out of the parking lot, they all get texts that say, robotics competition canceled. Everybody go home. And the next day, Jennifer Doudna gathered 50 scientists from the Bay Area, Berkeley, Stanford, UCSF, all the great universities, and said, okay, grab your pipettes, you know, grab your test tubes. We're going to have to refocus on this uh, pandemic. And so to me, it was very much a way of it hitting home. It was hitting home for me back then in March. It hit home to her personally uh, in March, and it would hit home for the scientific community to say, all right, these are not just basic curiosity-driven experiments we're doing. We're now in a race to do what bacteria do, which is fight off viruses. Before we get to CRISPR technology, I actually want to step back to to the humble RNA, because we are sitting in a moment right now where millions, potentially billions in short order, are going to receive a vaccine based off of RNA technology. And RNA technology that Jennifer Doudna and thousands upon thousands of scientists have worked on uh, for decades. Can you kind of contextualize RNA for us? Because it's going to be important as we talk about the CRISPR technology itself. Absolutely. RNA is the co-star, the best supporting molecule in this book. And you call it the humble molecule of RNA. After this year, I don't think RNA is going to be humble anymore. You know, its brother or its uh, sibling, uh, DNA, gets to be on all the magazine covers as the kind of famous molecule. But in the end, what DNA does is it sits in in the nucleus of our cell just curating information. Like a lot of famous siblings, it doesn't actually go out and do much real work. RNA builds real products. It takes snippets 
of that genetic code and goes to the manufacturing region of our cell and says, okay, build this protein or build this. And it also serves as a guide for the enzymes in our system. Well, you know what? That's exactly what CRISPR is about. That's what this mRNA uh, vaccine is about, is using this molecule either as a messenger saying, build this spike protein so we can create an immunity to it, or cut the DNA right here, be a guide telling me where to cut. And so I think uh, future generations will learn, will celebrate RNA more than they will DNA. You know, as my high school biology teacher put it, uh, DNA is the store of information. But just calling RNA the messenger is a disservice because it is the chief communicator of the cell. And at the end of the day, the one that communicates is the one that writes the story. And I always thought that always stuck with me uh, years later. As a writer, I'll salute that. But, you know, (laughs) Jennifer Dada, when all the other scientists, most of them men, were doing the Human Genome Project and trying to sequence DNA. She told me as a kid she liked to play soccer, but she would like to be not run towards the ball like all the boys did, but to be on the field strategically. And so she, in the 90s, as you know, she is one of the pioneers of figuring out the structure of RNA, just like Rosalind Franklin and Francis Crick and Jim Watson did the structure of DNA. And so she had always been interested in RNA, and, uh, and she'd made some groundbreaking work, even as a postdoc, doing the structure of RNA. Uh, let's talk about CRISPR, the technology itself. I'm only going to do this to you once. I'm going to ask you to actually unpack the acronym. Uh, and if you can, explain the technology which has taken over the life sciences world. Well, it's CRISPR. And there's a wonderful little story in my book of Francisco Mojica. Uh, he was a graduate student in Spain. And he helped figure out that bacteria have these clustered, you know, regularly interspaced, uh, short palindropic repeats. Bingo. That's what this acronym is for. But uh, they, had, they didn't have a name for it. They were calling them tandem repeats, whatever. And so he was the one who said, okay, he knew it was they were clustered and repeated. So he said, let's call them CRISPRs because that's a memorable acronym. They had been calling them something SRSR, which is so unmemorable. So he came up with the name CRISPR before he had figured out, okay, what words am I going to reverse engineer? So he knew he had clustered, repeated sequences. And so he had to reverse engineer it. So he got all the letters right. He gets home and to his wife and he says, I've named this thing CRISPR. And she said, that's a name for a puppy dog. That's not a name for a system. Come here, CRISPR, sit, sit. Anyway, he laughed and they called it CRISPR. But what it is is a system that bacteria have been using for a billion years to fight viruses, which happens to be a pretty good talent to have these days. And the way they do it is that when a virus attacks the bacteria, they take a mugshot of the genetic material of the attacking virus, a tiny little snippet of this attacking virus. And they weave it into these CRISPRs, these clustered repeated sequences, so that if the virus ever attacks again, the bacteria has a mugshot. And it takes a snippet of RNA as a guide and says, cut it up. And it just cuts up the virus that's been recorded with this mugshot. 
And so that's what it was originally. That's what it's been for a billion years in bacteria. And Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Sharpenchek, their great discovery for which they win the Nobel Prize is, oh, if bacteria can do it, we can do it too. And we can reprogram that guide RNA that the bacteria have. And instead of hitting the virus, we can program it to cut our own genes wherever we decide to target. So we got a bad gene, a gene that's causing a sickle cell or something. Boom. You use this system to cut it up. All of a sudden, we have the ability with a scalpel uh, to rewrite the code. Um, and that changes so much. I, you know, the thing that struck me when I was talking to Jennifer about this discovery is how, yes, her and Emmanuel uh, came along and harnessed this inside of um, uh, eukaryotes, inside mammalian cells. Um, but there had been all of these researchers that had been thinking about this before them that were applying it in like soil science. And she talked about just walking across campus one afternoon and talking to some soil scientists across the campus at UC Berkeley. And it kind of reinforced this picture that um, uh, that CRISPR wasn't just a magical discovery in the lab. It was years and years of work that led to uh, what they were able to do. You know, my fa- some of my fa- two of my favorite characters in the book are the yogurt makers. You know them, Rodolf Valengu and Philippe Horvath. And if you're a yogurt making company like Danisco, where they work, your big problem is when viruses attack your starter cultures, the bacteria of your starter cultures. And the interesting thing about Danisco is they kept, you know, years and years worth of genetic sequences of bacteria that they had for their starter cultures uh, as part of their records. And so Rodolphe and Philippe, you know, they're saying, okay, I'm going to look at all these bacteria year after year. And they are the ones who notice, I get it. Whenever there was an attack of a virus, that we had a viral attack, like we humans are going through now, by the next year, the sequences of the bacteria in our yogurt starter cultures had those new sequences in their CRISPR arrays. And uh, so there are a lot of people who are involved, including Francisco Mojica, the graduate student I told you about. But I love the fact that yogurt, you know, scientists at a food company are helping make these discoveries as well. Can you speak to how quickly this went from being a, an item of curiosity for Jennifer and Emmanuel and others to something that now is dominating the life sciences world? Because it, it almost seems like a revolution, not an evolution. Oh, it's definitely a revolution. No species have ever been able to hack its own genes before. So this is a big one. And as the Nobel Committee said, it brings science into a whole new epoch. And Nobel doesn't, the committee doesn't usually say things like that. And it happened pretty quickly because Jennifer Dowd is uh, asked by one of her colleagues at Berkeley, Jillian Banfield, hey, help me figure out how this system in bacteria works. You know, help me figure out CRISPR. Jillian Banfield was looking at weird bacteria from like salt mines and copper mines and weird environments. And so they were looking at it out of pure curiosity. And then she met Emmanuel Sharpenjay in Puerto Rico, who was also interested in it. 
And together, they figured out how do we find the exact components that this CRISPR system uses. It's pretty simple. It's really only two components, a single guide of RNA, which they fused together, and this enzyme that acts like the scissors. And she said at that moment, when they made it work in the lab, that was an aha moment. Like, oh my goodness, this is going to unleash a lot because what we've just done is invented a tool that can edit our genes. That was 2012. In the next six months, there was a race, a real fast, bitter race uh, in the book. It's a, you know, I talk about this rivalry with Fong Zhang at the Broad Institute and George Church at Harvard and uh, Jennifer Doudna at the Berkeley. They're all racing to prove how does it work in humans or mammal cells. And it's uh, almost a photo finish. Fong Zhang and George Church actually published two weeks earlier, but they're still fighting over the patents. So it happened real fast after the June 2012 paper of uh, Doudna and Charpentier. Within six months, five labs around the world had turned it into a gene editing tool. I mean, we're literally sitting here nine years after that paper came out. Uh, and that is an astronomical pace for life science. So, you know, I just stayed up the night they were going to announce the Nobel Prize, which Jennifer didn't. I wanted to be up when they did it. And I said, it's probably not going to go to CRISPR. It's only been eight years, 2012. And the day before, Roger Pen, so Roger Penrose had won it, you know, for a black hole discovery he had made 50 years ago. So the Nobel Prize Committee and science doesn't usually move this fast. But it was an example of, okay, this is really fast, and we all got to figure it out. Uh, one of the things you alluded to was this competitive race. And I want to underscore the economic um, impact, potentially, of this invention. We'll get more into the scientific uh, element and w what it means for disease. But uh, that competitive fight over these patents, can you speak to how much money is at stake how, like, and the companies that have formed um, uh, to really uh, continue this, this competition forward? Yeah, briefly, let me go way back to the 1970s when Paul Berg and Herbert Boyer and others around Stanford and the Bay Area and UCSF and all had discovered recombinant DNA and, you know, used it as a form of genetic engineering. Nobody had thought you could take patents out, but some smart lawyers at the various universities said we should patent it. The result, I mean, one result is Genentech. You can look it up right now, what its market cap is, but that sort of woke everybody up to the fact that when we make discoveries like this that can be useful, uh, whether we're a university or anywhere else, we should uh, maybe do patents. So in 2012, when they're all racing, all these teams are racing to use Jennifer Dowden's discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 and show how it applies in human cells. Uh, Jennifer Dowden and Emmanuel Charpentier jointly apply for a patent. Fong Zhang, who, as I say, is one of the first to get across the finish line of using it in humans, he quietly uh, files for a patent and files an expedited application, which... If we were a law course, uh, we could get into that. But frankly, I can't understand exactly how you expedite it. But he did. And then others were filing for it. This uh, is 
an ongoing patent battle between the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard and the uh, Manuel Charpentier Doudna teams. Uh, the amount of money is huge. Already, Jennifer Doudna has started Caribou Therapeutics, which uses CRISPR for disease uh, treatments. They started Mammoth Biosciences, which is using CRISPR for detection technology now, including a home detection device for coronavirus that's going to be rolled out in the next few months. And likewise, at uh, the Broad Institute in Cambridge Mass, uh, Feng Zhang started Sherlock Technologies and other such companies, including Editas, which at one point had Jennifer part of it. Uh, but then there was this patent battle and Jennifer left Editas. And Emmanuel has started her own, which is uh, CRISPR uh, Therapeutics, which is a company uh, that helped uh, solve sickle cell anemia a few months ago in a patient in Mississippi, cure it. So these are all companies that are going to be huge. They're already growing. And I think we're not going to see the consolidation in the biotech industry that we've seen in the infotech industry for many reasons. You know, you watch a Moderna popping up, a BioNTech popping up, Sherlock, Mammoth, Caribou. You know, it, people pop up with these new discoveries. And I think with the Biden has signaled very much so that the antitrust enforcement in biotech is going to be different than there had been in infotech. I definitely want to put a pin in that conversation because I think we're going to come back to uh, President Biden uh, later on. Uh, one of the things I, I want to talk about with CRISPR is the the scientific possibilities that it unlocks. And I think we are very quick in a lot of discussions about the potential of CRISPR to go 10, 20 years down the line. But there is stuff right at R4 that are one to five years away. Can you talk about some of the immediacy that CRISPR is already being harnessed for in our fight against disease? All right, let's talk about what's already happened because people in the Commonwealth Club are too... too uh... Uh, bored by vaporware. They've heard too much about things that are promised but haven't happened yet. So last year, as I mentioned, Victoria Gray, a real person from Mississippi, gets cured of sickle cell through genetic editing for the first time. They take out her t the uh, stem cells of her blood, edit it with CRISPR. She now makes good blood. Uh, it's also worked in Germany on related blood disorders, which are the easiest to use CRISPR on because it's a lot easier to take blood out and edit it than, you know, other forms of editing. But they've also used it in the eye for a type of congenital blindness. And that was done at the University of Washington last year. It's in clinical trials, editing the gene that causes that. In China, they're ahead of us, but the University of Pennsylvania is helping to catch up on what I think is a really big one, which is cancer. And that's in clinical trials now. And uh, uh, with immunotherapy, as you know, from Chan Zuckerberg and many other places, uh, we are now being able to use immunotherapy as a tailored way to fight each person's personal you know, cancers or tumors. Uh, but that's sometimes hard to do because the immune system can be disabled sometimes by cancer, which is a pretty clever system, and it's able, to dis, it's able to knock out or disable some of the immune system response. Now we're using CRISPR to edit the immunotherapy T cells so that they can fight cancer better. 
And that's going to be really huge because that's a genetic thing. You can sequence a tumor and you can say, here's my cancer. And you can use CRISPR detection technology, this home technology that'll tell you if you have coronavirus. Well, it can also tell you, you know, has, uh, do you have uh, cancers uh, resurging? And uh, we'll be able to use it to fight cancer. And this is not vaporware. These are things that are in clinical trials or in the case of Victoria Gray, have moved all the way from bench to bedside. Yeah, there is a number of genetic diseases. I think, you know, Huntington's disease is oftentimes cited and a number of rare childhood cancers, especially that have genetic roots, that the potential of this to not just treat, but eradicate the disease is within uh, our grasp now. Right, that's the next phase is these single gene mutations We've done sickle cell now, but we can do Huntington, cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy. And if you don't mind me, I'm sorry, but every now and then, and we'll get to it, I'm sure, about, oh, isn't this bad? And don't we have to worry about opening Pandora's box? And I get in discussions like this, and sometimes with Jennifer, we'll be, you know, at a conference or on a Zoom thing with a chat room. And people are saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, editing out sickle cell, whatever. And in the chat room, there's often, you know, three or four people saying, my granddaughter is 12 years old and she's got a congenital muscular uh, degenerative disease. And they say she's going to die in three years. Can you put me in touch with Jennifer Doudna? Maybe she can save her life. Or my son has this congenital cancer, like you mentioned, Kishore. And will it work on that? Can I call Jennifer? So before we get into the discussion, as I know we will, about is it moral to use this technology, let's also open our minds to ask, is it moral not to use this technology? Since you bring it up, I, I, I want to head in that direction. Um, but first and foremost, before we get to like the, the ethics and morality, um, we're talking about uh, people that are living with uh, with conditions, communities that have have built up around this, um, the weight of this discussion on an innovator must have been um, immense. How did Jennifer even start to grapple with this? When did she start to grapple with this? Uh, these complex issues around a technology that has incredible potential, um, but at the same time has the potential to be uh, abused as well. Well, in 2012, when she does the discovery with Emmanuel, uh, she's not looking at, you know, all the practical uses of it. But as soon as that discovery comes out, and then six months later, all these labs figure out how to do it in humans, suddenly she's getting these letters. She's meeting these people who say, you know, my, my son has muscular dystrophy, my daughter has cystic, whatever. And so she's starting to think about how do we make this not only able to be used in humans, but affordable. It's not a million-dollar treatment each time. Then she also has a nightmare. I describe it in the book. Somebody wants to understand this technology she's invented. So she goes in the room, and in her nightmare, the person looks up, and it's Hitler. And that's when she says, I'm going to start gathering scientists and ethicists so that around the world, from China, United States, Europe, uh, England. She gathers these summits, international summits, with other people, David Baltimore, Paul Berg, from the original uh, 
Genentech days. And they start trying to figure out what are the guidelines for when we use this technology. And the guidelines are, you know, let's not barrel ahead and do things that aren't medically necessary. But one reason in this book they're doing that is they also want to make sure that anti-science people don't just slam on the brakes, have a total moratorium, and say, quit even researching this. Because they're people who need to be cured. Mm -hmm. This is a massive topic for Jennifer to undertake. Um, and I'm realizing we haven't really talked about her. How, like, what is her temperament? What, how does she approach these, uh, these complex problems? Um, uh, just as a, as a scientist, these are overwhelming topics for anyone, but I'm curious if you can kind of describe who she is in these moments. Well, the bad news for a biographer is that She's actually very nice and very decent and doesn't have any rough edges. I mean, Steve Jobs was a dream for a biographer because everybody had some Steve Jobs story. But Jennifer is very collegial, but also competitive and stubborn. As a young girl, she's told girls don't do science, so she's going to do science. Uh, she's you know told nobody cares about RNA. She's going to do RNA. Uh, she's in a struggle in a race with the Broad, and they get patents. She doesn't surrender. She's engaged in a battle that's stronger than I would have fought. I would have settled the whole thing. So she's tough and she's stubborn and she's persistent, but she's also very collegial and nice and down to earth. And look, you know, she's been this year, besides having me hovering by her side and the Nobel Committee giving her a medal and the pandemic, her leading teams to do it, and her being the public face of the ethical discussion of this, she still remains very genuine and down to earth. She has a team building skill. Uh, and people say, well, how do you build teams right? There's no one right way. I mean, Steve Jobs built the greatest team ever at Apple in some ways, but he did it with a lot of conflicting personalities. On the other hand, so did like Franklin Roosevelt. He loved creative tension in the teams he built. And Doris Kearns Goodwin writes famously about Lincoln's team of rivals. Jennifer likes having somebody she may hire or somebody might join the lab or be a postdoc, meet everybody else in the lab or the company to see if they all get along, see if they're collegial, to see if people like them. And I said, well, doesn't that make you miss out on the person with creative tension, the person who's going to be a jerk, but maybe move you forward that way? She says, maybe so. I've thought about that, but this is the way I do it. I like people to work together well. So, you know, you've met her. Uh, you've interviewed her. She's about as genuine as you get. And that's why I start the book with her picking up her son at robot camp. And the book near the end of the book, she's in the kitchen drinking coffee with her husband, Jamie and Andy at this point, who is no longer annoyed because that morning her mother, his mother had just won the Nobel prize. Uh, but also, uh, in the teams that she's formed to fight COVID, I try to show her as a genuine person, because none of us are going to ever be like Einstein. You know, we're not going to have that processing power, but we can all be a little bit more like Jennifer Dowden, passionately curious, competitive, able to form good teams and being able to think imaginatively. You spoke to her, uh, her, uh, journey as a female scientist and so many of the people that were driving biology uh, when she came up were men. 
um, where men, and it's still that way a lot of times. And you cover this in the book. Can you speak to her, her, um, her, uh, her journey as a, as a female scientist and how that shaped uh, who she is now? Well, I think when she read about Rosalind Franklin, who's treated rather condescendingly by Jim Watson in The Double Helix, she said, I didn't really notice how condescending he was being. What I noticed is that she was a woman who did science. And then her school counselor in um, Hawaii says, no, girls don't do science. So it causes her to realize that, and it caused me to realize when I heard that story, people need role models, which is why I'm writing this book. I hope it inspires somebody else to become a scientist or many, many other people to become scientists. But I think she always kept in mind that, you know, she had that headwind. But she was very insistent to me that I not make this a book about, you know, woman triumphs over adversity. She said, you know, she thinks of herself as a scientist first, not as a woman scientist. And that being a woman has caused you know, some of the headwinds, also some of the advantages she may have had. But she wanted it not to be told as if this was a book about women scientists. This is a book about life scientists. It does so happen that is not only Jennifer, but her partner, Emmanuel Charpentier, and the person who was her first uh, teammate looking at CRISPR, Jillian Banfield. You know, there are a lot of women scientists in this book. Uh, the place where she met, I'll just name one, uh, the most problem uh, was not with scientists, but members of the Commonwealth Club and, uh, you know, will get this. It's with venture capitalists. Whenever she wanted to start a company, she'd get into a room and every person at the venture capital table back then, this 2011, 2012, were men. And then when she starts Caribou and Rachel Horowitz, her uh, had been a graduate student and postdoc and was going to be the CEO. They kept saying, well, maybe we should, we can find this guy and maybe he's better to run the company. Likewise, even when she was forming CRISPR companies, it was uh, especially the finance people kept pushing to have, you know, men run the company, she thought. Now, that wasn't always the case, but women are making great strides in the life sciences. 60% of the people studying biology in undergraduate or postdoc or graduate school are women now. But they aren't making great strides in the corporations that monetize the biosciences. Some are, but, uh, and you know, you know real well, like Sue Desmond Hellman, I'm sorry, somebody you know. And she was pretty high up in Genentech. But Jennifer rankled when all the people forming Editas the company that was founded by Fong Jang, George Church, and Jennifer, uh, when all the bankers in Boston who were doing it and they'd have meetings, she'd be the only woman in the room. And she f finally left because she said, I face more headwinds when it comes to finance and when I, and then when it comes to biology. Uh, that's not surprising. Uh, and the, But I am hoping that that ground is shifting because of Jennifer's contributions. I, I want to project forward a little bit. When we look at the, the history of biomedical innovations, big biomedical innovations, oftentimes those innovations are not equally distributed, particularly here in the United States. As you look at CRISPR and how much progress we've made and the potential, which you outline uh, uh, so well in your book, do you see 
those innovations, those tech, those ability to advance against disease, do you believe that we're going to be able to equally distribute those? And if not, what do we need to grapple with now to ensure they do make it to those people? Yeah, there are two parts of that question. One is the type of technology we've now just developed with CRISPR for, say, sickle cell, which affects mainly blacks, which are an underserved community when it comes to medicine. And that's a million-dollar treatment or so. And so Jennifer has gotten Fyodor Yornov, a great scientist, and some others, as part of her team at Berkeley and the whole area, uh, to say, how are we going to make this affordable real fast? How are we going to bring the cost down so it becomes affordable? The bigger question, and this is the ethical question, is at some point we'll be able to edit our own genes and even maybe, as the Chinese doctor did, do designer babies that have particular genetic traits that we've decided to pick at the genetic supermarket when we, you know, are having kids. And if those offerings at the genetic supermarket aren't going to be free, and they won't be, are we going to end up allowing the rich to say, I want my kids to be taller. I want my kid to have bigger muscle mass. I want my kid to have better memory or, you know, And will we allow the rich to buy better genes, which would take the inequalities we now have in society and not only exacerbate them, but encode them into our species? So that's from the immediate issue of how do we make sure that uh, gene editing therapies can be done uh, broadly uh, to the far philosophical issue of should the rich be able to buy better genes for their children and what will that do to our species? That's why I wrote this book because all these things, the people in this book all wrestle with these things over dinners, over discussions at summit meetings. And I hope all of us will feel comfortable enough saying, all right, let me wrestle with that. That's a big dilemma we should figure out in society and not be like our normal political discourse where there's some knee jerk, you know, far left, far right uh, opinions and, Everybody else gets caught in the crossfire. I think that's one of the things I left your book struggling with was a question of not only the questions that we need to grapple with as a society, but who gets to grapple with those questions? Who gets to decide those answers? Um, And there isn't a clean answer to that question. Um, Whether the scientists, the experts, the Jennifer Doudnas who has spent their whole career, what input do they have versus the people that are going to be the the end beneficiaries of the technology, what role do they have? How do you approach the complexity of that question? In my book, James Watson, who, as you know, is a problematic character, to say the least, these days, uh, I quote him as saying, if scientists don't play God, who will? And I try to then go on to answer that question, which is we will. We're going to be the ones to decide how to use it. We're not going to cede it just to the scientists or to the politicians necessarily. Uh, you know, and that's why there are religious leaders, bioethicists. I bring them all together in this journey of discovery we do in the book. Like, okay, what do we do about Huntington's? What do we do about um, blindness? What do we do about height? What, you know, and we go case by case through these issues. Um, but you said something interesting in the way you phrased it, which was good, in my opinion, because there have been a lot of these summits, and they're filled with both scientists and policymakers and also bioethicists. And there are a lot of people saying, don't go there, don't go there. Let's make sure it's medically necessary, which I agree with. 
But I've been to some of these summits and read the transcripts of some of them. And missing sometimes are the kids, the patients, the people with genetic disorders, or the parents of patients with genetic disorders. So I think we have to have everybody, including the disability community, that might say, don't do this on our back, but also people with genetic disabilities who are saying, hey, you can wring your hands as much as you want, but let's cure Huntington's. Uh, And hearing some of those communities say, I don't want change. Like there is nothing um, uh, wrong that I I want here. Deafness is an interesting one because until I spent some time with the deaf community and even in the balcony behind me was watching uh, one day here in the French Quarter of New Orleans, as people from Gallaudet University were here. And so I realized, you know, that certainly those of us in the hearing enabled community probably don't appreciate that the deaf community is adding a lot of to our species. On the other hand, if I were a parent and my kid was going to be born with a, a genetic, um, I don't know, call it a defect, but that, you know, a genetic trait that made it clear that she or he would be deaf, I would probably say, gee, I'd rather that not happen. So I think uh, this is something that all of us are equally expert at. We should all open our minds and not just say, well, the experts will have to decide that one. Yeah, the uh, the role of the expert in the society is evolving. And that, that brings me to the moment now that we're all living in. Uh, never before in my lifetime has uh, society had to grapple with science as a daily choice. And we're in the middle of um, one of the hardest years um, that I that I've ever endured, and we're asking our population uh, to grapple with science. And, you know, I, my mom called me last night wanting to talk about efficacy of clinical trials. That is not a conversation we've ever had before. Um, and in this moment, um, you spent months embedded at the frontiers of life science. Did you walk away with any reflections? on how our society is engaging with this question of, of how science is used as a tool to, to help our society. Absolutely. And that's the reason, one of many reasons I wrote the book, was there's an anti-science sentiment that kicked up even before we started debating whether you should wear a mask or not or get a vaccine or not. And even before climate change became a big issue, which is, you know, some people are just afraid of science and there's a a knee-jerk resistance uh, to scientific advances. And also, and this is a subtler point, let me try to see if I can make it right. There's a resistance to the scientific method. When I'm at a lab, like Jennifer Dowden's lab, and she's got a theory, which is that if we use this RNA guide, it will interfere with the pathway of some gene, but it won't cut the gene. And then they say, well, let's do the experiment. And let's say the experiments show she's wrong, that it actually does it a different way. Well, the scientific method says, then you revise your theories. And we've lost that ability that Ben Franklin brought to the founding uh, of this country, which is let the experiment be made, he kept saying. Let's find the evidence And let's not all just have ideological positions. Let's trust the method of saying, 
here's my instinct, here's my position, here's my belief, but if I get shown some evidence, I'm willing to change my mind. We've become a society in which we're not as evidence-driven and we're more ideological. And so I hope this book not only makes people respect science more and scientists more, but also makes them respect the scientific method more. Well, you're not going to get an argument from me. I've dedicated my life to uh, helping communities use science as a tool to address the problems they face. And I think the potential of of uh, that innovation is untold in our society. Um, I, I want to go forward uh, to the current administration. Uh, Eric Lander, who is a chief character in your book, uh, has been nominated to uh, a first ever cabinet level position as science advisor to President Biden. Um, what's your sense of how President Biden is going to be approaching issues in biomedical and health sciences? And, and what does it signal bringing somebody like Eric Lander on board as, as his number one when we're used to seeing physicists in that role? I think it's a big deal. And it shows the role of life sciences. And it shows where Joe Biden's heart is. Uh, I know people, you know, I've talked to people around Joe Biden. And um, I know that he is striving to be a science president. The cancer moonshot was a big part of his life, especially since his son had died of cancer. And so he can look at things like how DARPA was created by Eisenhower and may, and after Sputnik, and we have, you know, the internet and space program and all coming out of it, that maybe now is the time to have a DARPA that's aimed at the life sciences. And that's deeply something that he believes, which is why I think he brought Eric Lander in. He's made some, you know, some talks about this. Uh, I was asked by and I was in a discussion with Doris Kearns Goodwin, my former professor. It so happens and when I was in college. And it was, who were the great science presidents ever? And uh, she said, Teddy Roosevelt and Lincoln, and gave good argument for it. And I said, counterintuitively, Dwight Eisenhower. I say counterintuitively because he never impressed people as, you know, being the most articulate, you know, science buff. But he loved what he called my scientists. He used to gather them for dinner. Uh, he creates DARPA, which, you know, is, and he creates NASA. And uh, after Sputnik in particular, he's really pushing that. But I also think, and I said, the next one is going to be Joe Biden. This is just something that he feels both personally and as a policymaker that we've entered into an era of life sciences we're going to be defined by how we use it. And whether it's cancer or coronavirus or CRISPR, that's the scientific advances that will be at the intersection of the lab bench and the policy desk. Uh, Eric Lander's a great choice. He's a hard-driving person. He certainly was hard-driving in the competition that his institute, The Broad, had against Jennifer Doudna. But you don't build The Broad without being hard driving. He built it into the institute that is the best in the world, I think, at turning genetic basic research into translational medicine. And he's a magnet for talent, and he's going to be an aggressive science advisor. And your question is a good one. I can't wait to see 
how this unfolds. I, I think uh, anyone that's met Eric will tell you that he is a genius and the, the broad should be applauded for what they have done around uh, genetic testing during the, this COVID time. Uh, one more question before you turn it over to audience Q&A. And it's a bit of a personal one. Um, late last year, you were a participant in a vaccine trial um, for COVID, um, for the Pfizer trial. I was wondering if you can talk about you know, you're writing this book, you're going through this experience, and you at the same time volunteer to be part of a, a trial. I was wondering if you could relate your own personal experience being being part of a vaccine trial and, and how that's changed your your orientation to life science, if at all. Well, as I said, RNA is the hero molecule of the book. And suddenly I'm reading about RNA being used in its basic capacity, which is as a messenger to go build proteins, as a way to build uh, little parts of the spike protein and vaccinate us. And I'm thinking that is truly amazing. I'm talking to Jennifer about it. And I'm here in New Orleans and we have Ochsner uh, Medical Center here. And they were, I think just it was online. I saw they were looking for people to join the clinical trial. And this was last July. And I went online, typed in my name. And the next day I got a phone call and the next day I got a jab. And I actually went through. Wow. Yeah. That's so fast. Yeah, well, you know what? They were in a hurry for good reason. And, you know, I was totally, people say, you know, were you at all worried? And my wife was worried because Oxford Hospital, you got to drive up Claiborne Avenue and out Jefferson Highway. And she thinks I was more likely to get into an accident than have a problem with the vaccine. But we all should be involved in science. We all do our civic duties like uh, jury duty. Well, you know what? Part of being a good civic citizen is be involved in citizen science. Go right now to your local hospital and uh, search for, you know, clinical trial. And whether it's, you know, for a vaccine or for a baldness cure or whatever it may be, um, I think we should all be part of clinical trials. It's a good way for us to be connected to science. It's a good way for our kids to say, oh, yeah. I get it. We should all be connected to science. I, I've been part of a couple of trials over my lifetime, and I, it'll say it gave me an appreciation for how science is done. And that um, appreciation has helped orient my perspective towards scientific discoveries, especially in how scientific discoveries are often presented through the media to me. And it let me be a bit more critical um, of, uh, of those discoveries. Uh, on the point of of democratizing science, as you said, citizen science, uh, how uh, one audience question is, how long do you think CRISPR experimentation will be limited to institutional labs? Might high school students uh, be able to do this at home? Do you think this will become something that expands beyond the lab? One of my favorite characters in the book is Josiah Zayner. He pops up the way Puck does in A Midsummer Night's Dream when we're all wringing our hands and he says, what fools these mortals be? He's a biohacker. And in his garage, he's been using CRISPR therapy. It was in San Francisco, actually, uh, at a conference about a year ago that he just took a syringe uh, with CRISPR edit to edit the gene for the myostatin control so he could do bigger muscles. And he was saying, you can order this from my lab, my garage lab. I sell it online. And people say, well, why don't you do it? He said, fine. He pulls it out from his bag and he jabs himself. Uh, so 
we already have biohackers doing it. Um, and the Defense Department has actually enlisted him, you know, because they know they need citizen science participation. I went into Jennifer's lab and with two graduate students and two days of study, I was able to edit human genes. So this is something that's not going to be, it's not like when I wrote about Einstein, I knew I would never make a nuclear bomb in my basement. Um, it's not going to be easy to deliver CRISPR. I mean, you can't, even if you can edit a cell, delivering it into a human is hard. Uh, but it's not something that will be totally the realm of uh, safeguarded scientists. I will fully admit, as somebody that has spent some time with Josiah Zayner, I will say that he is quite the character. Um, though I got a great is- picture of him in the book. I don't, I'm gonna, uh, I don't, now you have the book, but one of the things I push my publisher to do is like color pictures throughout. You know, it's it's got to be. Uh, there he is, the chapter on biohacking. And for those who want to see Josiah Zayner, that's what he looks like. And he comes in at the end with CRISPR, too. I, I will say the kit that he sells on his website is a bit finicky, so don't have high expectations about what you're able to do. I saw but- him uh, you know, online recently, and that thing that was supposed to make his muscle mass double, it didn't work. Yeah. He's still a scrawny not- kid. I'm not I'm not surprised. But uh, at the same time, it's like it is it does represent he does represent the boundary pushing that's going on. Um, As Steve Jobs said, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the ones that push the human race forward. uh, uh, Speaking of uh, jobs, like so many of your uh, great biographies, you're often able to find that thing, that special thing that makes these giants tick. Um, What is it that that drove Jennifer Dowda? What made her tick? I think she was competitive. I think she had a natural curiosity. You know, she would, growing up in Hawaii, she would like gather seashells. And she, uh, her dad had a friend who was a biologist. And so he would, she would help gather the seashells. And she was curious about why do they curl the way they do? Why is the spiral that way? And when she told me about that, I said, you know, that's in Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks. He's always drawing the spirals of seashells and uh, snails and curls of hair and swirls of water and wondering about the spiral. And there's so many other examples I could give uh, of pure curiosity. Now, you and I remember seeing a snail when we were young and like, oh, look, wow, it curls that way. And then we're on to, oh, look, there's a dead squirrel and we're on to something else. But I think Jennifer persisted in just being deeply curious about things. And if you, people have asked me, what's the common traits on the people you write about? Number one would just be curiosity. Whether it's Ben Franklin, Leonardo, Steve Jobs, Jennifer Doudna, Einstein getting a compass when he's a kid. And just being passionately curious about, well, nothing's touching the compass needle. Why is it moving and pointing north? So the cool, the good thing about that is, as I say, we're never going to be Einstein in processing power, but we can try to retain the curiosity that we had in our wonder years. Another audience question. In your opinion, does health come from more technology or less? Has writing this book changed your opinion at all? Does health come from more? Yeah, I I think the implication, does better health come from technology? What's the relation of technology to health outcomes? enormous. It's been huge. And I know people can 
sometimes recoil against technology. But when I read about Edward Jenner trying to figure out how to take cowpox and make it into a vaccination for smallpox, whenever that was in the 1800s, or Louis Pasteur, or I realize that penicillin probably saved more lives during, you know, than were killed uh, in the wars of this century uh, when it came along. I remember, I'm just old enough to remember not being able to go to the swimming pools because of polio. Uh, I think the Salk and Sabin vaccines were what, 1955, 56? I was a couple years old. Uh, it maybe took a year or so to get them all rolled out here. Um, but suddenly, I mean, I had a childhood friend who had polio and he walked with a brace his whole life. Uh, so science is, a, I'd say it's a miracle, but it's not a miracle. It's understandable. It's, it is something we can uh, fully appreciate. And every day science is doing things. And that's why I went out to Oxford Hospital to get jabbed with the Pfizer vaccine. Why you've gotten jabbed, you told me. I mean, heavens, imagine what we would be like right now against this coronavirus if we didn't have antivirals, we didn't have a vaccine on the horizon, we didn't have tests and technology that could detect it. Yeah, they, the pr profound societal benefit is there, but the work of bringing society along seems to be one of the great challenges. And that's part um, and of the point of this book is, hey, walk with us on this journey of discovery because we all have to come along and not feel intimidated by science. We all have to try to appreciate it and see its beauty. Uh, speaking to that challenge, there's an audience question about the gene editing of babies and particularly what happened in, in China. And um, I think there's two parts to this question that, A, have we just opened Pandora's box that can't be shut again with the um, uh, with that experiment that went outside the boundaries of what a lot of scientists and regulatory bodies thought was um, appropriate? Uh, and do we think that there's any any way of recovering from that misstep? You know, we had a, we um, let the genie out of the bottle in the time of Einstein when we dropped two atom bombs. But we've done pretty good since then in saying, okay, this is a technology we should not use during wartime. Uh, as with gene editing that are inheritable in designer babies, I think that's a long way away. I know the Chinese doctor did it, uh, but it wasn't safe. It was a sloppy experiment. And I think we have some time to try to say, Let's figure out the rules of the road here. I'm not in favor of saying we'll never do inheritable edits. I think if we're going to get rid of Huntington's and even sickle cell, uh, you could spend a million dollars a patient or you could edit it out of the reproductive cells. Uh, and I think we'll have to make some guidelines that say when it's medically necessary and safe, uh, we'll do it. But we're not going to do it for enhancements. We're not going to do it for making our kid taller than the kid next door. Uh, we're going to do it for things that are truly med medically necessary. Now, there's a lot of fine lines and gray areas and things, but we all know what that should be like. And this is not something we have to worry about next year or the year after. Even with the two twins in China, 
Uh, this is not something that's going to just be happening all over the place. It's difficult to do. Um, and uh, it's not something that we can, we can easily do a single gene, maybe. But on more complex things, such as, you know, IQ or intelligence or memory or even height, uh, that's going to, we have a few decades before we're going to have to face that. But we should start the discussion now. We should discuss, we should say, as a society, what should we decide and also who should decide? You know, one quick follow up on that. Um, This is one of those discussions that also crosses cultural boundaries. So this isn't a discussion that's just limited to the U.S. where it'd be complicated unto itself, but one where there's a lot of research being done in this space uh, in countries that have a very different orientation to some of these questions. Uh, Do you have any sense in, in talking to Jennifer and a lot of the scientists involved, how they're navigating the global nature to this? Well, Jennifer is the one who's been helping to convene with David Baltimore and others, and, you know, Robin Lovell Badge in England, and um, uh, Duang Qingpei, a friend of mine who's a Chinese uh, geneticist, uh, trying to make an international summit to talk about it. And uh, one of the things you say you're worried about China, well, China ended up putting the doctor who did that uh, designer baby gene edit uh, on trial and in jail. So it's not like we have totally different attitudes. I do think it's going to have to be discussed internationally. You know, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan are meeting with their Chinese counterparts uh, in Alaska. There's so many things they're going to be fighting over and opposing each other on. But when you have such international meetings, you should also have a column saying, where can we cooperate? And I would put CRISPR number one on that list. We're going to take one last audience question before a, a closing question. Uh, between this book and Steve Jobs, do you think there's anything special about the San Francisco Bay Area that helps these leaders thrive here? Yeah, and I have that both in my Steve Jobs bio. I did a book called The Innovators, which is all about um, Silicon Valley and the Bay Area. And I uh, won't summarize it all here. Uh, But yes, there's a cradle of creativity that came, especially in the 70s and 80s, with everything from genetic editing and recombinant DNA, but especially with the hackers and uh, homebrew computer club and the free speech movement and uh, all the tribes from the hippies to the uh, geeks who helped create the digital revolution. And there was a certain free spirit to it. There was a willingness to fail. There were venture capitalists willing to say, okay, you're now on strike you know, two, but let me give you another pitch. Uh, and that happens there. I do think that San Francisco in particular in the Bay Area is a well-positioned because of the hospitals, UCSF, Berkeley, because this new revolution is not going to be done in a garage or a garret. It's going to need real labs. Uh, I do think Boston is now back in the game. It had lost Route 128 around Boston, had been the center of the computer revolution in the 60s and 70s. Then it moved out west. Uh, I think Kendall Square is the new uh, counterpoint to Silicon Valley. Uh, But I also think it'll be distributed. As I say, it won't be concentrated in four companies. I think it'll be distributed in even places like New Orleans that have good research universities and medical centers. 
uh, will will find you know contributions to make in this revolution. I'm so glad you said the word creativity because after reading all of your books, that's the one word that jumps out at me from all of these people, and it was uh, so affirming and uplifting to see that word applied. Uh, to life sciences, something that I see behind the scenes every day at work, um, and to have it applied to uh, to the to the life and work of Jennifer Doudna, Emmanuel Charpentier, and, and so more, it was um, it, it was very uplifting to see that there is this common thread between these these people. You know, I've known a lot of smart people in my life, and after a while, you realize they're a dime a dozen. They often don't amount to much. Creativity, that's the key. Creativity meaning think different, be innovative, be curious. And whether it's Ben Franklin to Jennifer Doudna to Leonardo to Steve Jobs, I try to write books that say, what is creativity and how does it happen? One last question. Um, And we've touched on this a few times. This has been um, uh, a decade in the last year. Um, And our emergence from this uh, touches upon our ability to harness the power of science uh, to emerge from the pandemic uh, faster um, and potentially harness the power of science so that um, the uh, future crises uh, can uh, be avoided or, or managed without as much economic and human harm. Are you optimistic about our ability to do that, given what you've seen in the last year, especially here in the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look how we all threw ourselves into the science community and into doing vaccines and detection technologies. Uh, and certainly the young people who are part of this biotech revolution. If you look in my book, uh, there are a lot of George Churches and Jennifer Doudness, but there are lots of pictures of people in their 20s and 30s, you know, Enrique Lin Chao and Jennifer Hamilton and even Fong Jang's crowd are pretty young And these are the new people on the frontier, and they have the same spirit that the hackers on the digital frontier had in the 70s and 80s. And we as a society have calmed down a little bit in the past uh, few months, realize we're going to have to keep fighting this coronavirus, realize about vaccines. I'm not worried about our society. I'm not worried about the next generation. I'm certainly not worried about science. I'm worried a little bit about politics because our politics and our media, uh, social media, that when it intersects with politics tends to make us polarized. But a pandemic tends to bring us together. And despite all those arguments about I'm not going to wear a mask or I'm going to do these things, those are mainly things you're you know seeing on cable TV's shout shows. What you see that aren't on those shows is people working together, People, my neighbors working in hospitals, helping uh, people getting vaccines, people reopening their businesses. We're going to come out of this stronger. Now, that's something worth believing in. Um, Our thanks to Walter Isaacson, author of the new book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank our program partners at Wonderful Science and our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Kishore Hari. Thank you so much for joining us today and stay safe and healthy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.